Hi, and welcome back to the show. Today, I am joined by David Li Chu. He is the CEO and founder of Li Chu Property Consultants. Li Chu is at the epicenter of the property market in the Philippines, specifically the commercial property market. David himself has been intimately involved in the boom of the property market over the last 26 years. He has seen the rise of the Philippines in that time and, of course, the economic prosperity for all in that time. Uh, There has been an incredible boom in outsourcing and alongside with that, the commercial property market. And literally in that time, you know, new city centers have been built and millions of square meters of commercial property has been built. So it's just an incredible journey. And a lot of this is really built off the back of the emergence of the outsourcing industry. So David is the man to know and Lee Chu is the property group. They have their ear to the ground and are intimately involved in every aspect of the property market here in the Philippines. So it's great to have David on the show. And of course, I wanted to get him on the show because commercial property is so connected to the outsourcing uh, industry. And, you know, it has been since the beginning. But of course, recently, uh, that's been really unsettled and has been knocked around a bit because of COVID, because of the pandemic, and everyone has been on lockdown, uh, more so in the Philippines than most other economies. So it was great to get David on the show to discuss all of that, and I really uh, learned a ton, and it was a fantastic conversation. So as always, I hope you enjoy, and if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Outsource Accelerator. We are the world's leading outsourcing marketplace and advisory. We help big and small businesses with their outsourcing needs and we can help you too. We cover everything from business and staffing strategy, optimal outsourcing structures, implementations and fully managed services. If you're already outsourcing, about to start or somewhere in between, then we can ensure that you get the best from outsourcing. That's the best prices, best terms, and of course, the best results from your outsourcing practices. We list over 700 outsourcing suppliers on our website, host this leading outsourcing podcast, and have over 5,000 pages of content. Because we span the entire market, we can ensure that you get the best deal possible. We offer everything from light brokerage, co-managed services, through to fully managed solutions. Get in touch today. Visit us at outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Mention that you're a podcast listener and we will give you special attention plus a 10% discount. This is for a limited time only. Go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash quote. Hi, and welcome back to the show, everybody. Today, I'm joined by David Lee Chu. David, how are you? Welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me, Derek. Great to have you. And David, I suppose initially, we don't have too many property experts on the program. So just introduce uh, Lee Chu Property Consultants and, and what you do. 
Sure. Um, so we put this business up about five years ago. I used to run the Jones Lang South Lichu business in the Philippines. And uh, I did that for eight years. And we, my colleagues and I set up this business in 2015. And uh, since then, we've become the largest brokerage business in, in the country. We, are, we, we tell people what to do with, with how to invest in the property market. We tell tenants like uh, JP Morgan, Citibank, and HSBC, and, and the like, what to do with the, uh, with the lease uh, portfolio that they have here. Should they own, should they buy, uh, should they lease? And we tell, we, we have a very prominent, disproportionate market share in the BPO sector where nine of the 11 largest BPOs are our exclusive clients and we do everything for them in the Philippines. So we do site selection, we, we help them analyze labor, we help them connect the local market, tell them where to go, where the next uh, labor uh, market should be, uh, behavior about their tenants uh, and other trends. And I've had a 26 year run in this industry Many of my colleagues have been working with me for anywhere between 10 to 15 years. We also do appraisal, valuation, and feasibility studies. Incredible, incredible business. And, um, you know, anyone that has spent any time in Manila has seen your uh, logos and emblems, in, you know, emblazoned on, across many buildings and every part of the city. So certainly very prominent. And you're, you're Philippines-wide? Yes, we do everything in the Philippines. So we cover office buildings, residential, hotels, industrial, warehouses, malls, basically anything and everything that people, whether people are interested to invest or, or own and want to maximize property or they want to divest is a client of ours. And the reason why I've got you on the show, David, is because the the commercial property market and outsourcing are so inextricably linked. Uh, and of course, the COVID with the pandemic, with the lockdowns, uh, has also had a massive impact on the commercial property sector and outsourcing. So I wanted to get you on the show to to discuss all of these things. Um, because of course, prop- the, the property market has you know such a big impact on sort of the economic prosperity of the country as well. So it's all so inter connected. But first, David, you you mentioned you've had a 26-year run, and it's been an incredible 26-year run, hasn't it? You know, the the Philippines has um, really flourished in that time, and not least because of the outsourcing industry. Can you maybe, you know, give a sort of 100-foot overview of the the commercial property market and, and how much that has developed over the last 26 years? Oh, thank you. Yes. So, I always, I always share with people that COVID is probably the biggest crisis we've had in, in 30 years or 40 years economically. But frankly, frankly, this crisis is not as bad as the 80s crisis that we went through during uh, 1983 to a pretty much 1991, that was a very long, hard crisis. And uh, 97, the Asian financial crisis was also a very hard crisis. 
we had uh, a crisis, one of the longest, we were one of the longest economies uh, in that crisis from 1997 to 2005, I would say, 2004. And that's because even though the economy contracted 10%, and that's very hard to imagine, uh, the reality also, and what many people take for granted, is that the BPO sector and the overseas remittances continue to become a source of funding for the economy. There's 30 to $40 billion flowing into the economy a year from overseas remittances. And through the 40 years, 50 years, that has only gone one way, and that's up, despite all the crises that's happened in the country or in the world. Uh, and even though the IMF, the ADB, the World Bank all say that, oh, this crisis is going to cause a significant drop in remittances, the remittances continue to rise despite whatever crisis that was, whether it's 2008, GFC, or today. And the BPO sector has made the Philippines a counter-crisis, an anti-crisis platform for many countries in the West. So every time they go into a crisis, whether it's the Euro debt crisis or the GFC, as an example, more jobs are created in the Philippines and we can directly correlate a financial crisis in the West or an economic crisis in the West with the immediate spike in BPO expansion in the Philippines the following fiscal year. And that's exactly what's happening in uh, 2020 and how the numbers have behaved uh, from the beginning of the lockdown March of 2020 to today, uh, July 2021. You see that big spike happening since uh, since the start of this year. And interest rates were between 26 to 40% in the 80s. Uh, and in the 90s, I remember my mom taking a home loan, a two-year fixed home loan at 16% per annum. And uh, that's when many economies in the world, in the West, were enjoying 5-6% fixed for 20-30 years. <clears throat> and I'm happy to say that uh, those interest rates have come down to where it is today, which is about 6% for the ordinary home loan borrower. And for the prime borrowers, they can get debt for as cheap as uh, 3% a year. And... Uh, we have never seen those numbers. In the 80s, when, when we were going through whatever it is that we were going through then, uh, we, had, we had credit status that was equivalent to junk bonds. We, we told the world, sorry, we can't, uh, we don't have any money, we ran out, we can't pay your debts, so sorry and goodbye. And that really caused a lot of economic havoc because money became 
scarcer and scarcer. Today, we are a investment-grade rated country, triple B status for most, and it doesn't look like, um, well, the, the credit agencies recently announced that they are very closely watching uh, how we are managing this COVID crisis, and so they might cause us a downgrade. But imagine in COVID 2020, the Philippines actually got an upgrade. It's one of 17 countries in the world that got a credit upgrade from somebody during COVID. And so if, if we ever get downgraded, we will just join one of many, many countries from uh, that, that got downgrade during this COVID crisis. And most importantly, there is civil and political stability through this, through this COVID crisis, which we never had up until this, this, uh, this last two administrations sat. We never had economic, or sorry, we never had political stability up until the Aquino, the second Aquino administration came in. And we never enjoyed the, the favorable uh, ratings that this president continues to enjoy. His term is about to end in a few months, and yet he enjoys the highest approval rating that anybody's ever had in the world. The Philippines, it really seems to be coming of age, doesn't it? Because, you know, it, it's had a really tough past. And as you said, with the sort of political and economic um, uncertainties of the past, but now, you know, going right back to the beginning of what you said, the the um, stability created from the outsourcing industry and the overseas foreign workers with their remittances, those two industries alone contribute about 25% to the GDP. And those industries generate their revenues from really external economies, don't they? So it creates a very stable sort of economic income when 25% of your GDP is effectively generated from the, the, the health of external economies. Uh, and it's sort of shown time and time again now that it creates an incredible stability. And also what we were saying, you know, prior to going live, the Philippines relatively has very low levels of debt, which I think also uh, kind of stabilizes the economy, doesn't it? So it's... Um, it's it's incredibly kind of stable and and has a great bright future ahead of it. Do you think? Uh, certainly, certainly, Derek. We have solved a lot of issues that we had in the last twenty years, and as a result of everything that I've said, two things have happened. We doubled our per capita income in the last twenty years, so from fifteen hundred per capita U.S. dollars to roughly about. 3,300 today per capita. And so during that journey of 20 years, we solved a lot of problems. And, and those are the things that uh, I enumerated earlier. The second consequence of all the stability is that this administration has done the largest <clears throat> infrastructure program 
the Philippines has seen in 50, 60 years, since the rebuilding of, of the Philippines from the World War. And it is fantastic because this last 24 months and the next six months, uh, the Filipino people will enjoy infrastructure like they have never seen before. We have 12 to 15 projects that are in the final stages of completion all over the country. And most importantly, the geography between Clark all the way to Cavite Laguna and the National Capital Region. This small geography comprises 60% of the GDP of the economy and is about to receive 12 projects between roads, bridges, trains, and all, all these will be completed. All these will be completed uh, in the next uh, six months to, to 12 months. And, and so when the Philippines, when the Filipino people get out of lockdown, get out of these restrictions of travel, they're going to drive their car through new roads, new bridges, they're going to ride new trains, and it's going to be, it's going to feel like a new Philippines mm. for many people. And I'm so excited because Clark Airport is going to open in a month or two. And Clark, when, when travel restrictions are lifted, Clark is going to be the gateway for North Asia tourism for the Philippines. And people will land on time. They will leave on time from their destination, land on time in the Philippines, and drive through some of the best roads the Philippines ever have, which is comparable globally. And some of the most scenic views uh, to access all these beautiful uh, landscapes and, and seascapes in the world. And so I think the conclusion is there's a very, very strong chance, a very high probability that the per capita income of the Philippines will more than double in the next 20 years. And that just translates to higher educated workforce, better skilled workforce, a more global-minded people, and uh, in my business, it just translates to more demand for real estate. And to your point earlier, we will see new highs in the property sector in the next 20 years, as we did in the last 20 years. And this hopefully will not be debt-driven inflation. It will be real demand. Uh, and that's why the journey of the Philippines took so long, because we had to clear through so much debt. Uh, and to be fair, the administration, when it started, had a debt-to-GDP ratio of just about under 40%. Today, they are touching mid-50s. And they did that because um, they were able to borrow when we needed it which is for infrastructure and for addressing the problems being brought about by COVID. Yeah, it's such an incredible 
story and you know it, it's come so far what can you you know can you for the audience that aren't familiar with the with the sort of business districts of bgc and mccarty what can you say in terms of like the building and development that's happened there over the last 15 years so in the beginning of i would say 2005 the office sector only had something like six million square meters of office space so we built about i would say five to six million square meters between the 1950s all the way to 1990s. And this is all sort of B and C grade office space really, isn't it? Yeah, well, there's, there's a million to a million and a half of grade A office, international grade A office, and then the rest are uh, Bs and Cs, a lot of Cs. Uh, and then since then, since then, we've we now have about 13 million square meters of office space that we built just in the last 15 years. So what we built in 30, 40 years, we, we replicated and built about the same stock, but we did that in like under 15 years. And most of, most of that stock actually got completed in the last, um, I would say, eight years. So it's been an incredible ride. And the second thing, I could say is that in the year 2000, 2001, there were a thousand employees in the BPO sector. And today there's 1.3 million square meters. That's sorry, 1.3 million employees, full-time employees in the BPO sector. And so what does that, what does that do practically for Philippines from a, from a foreigner's perspective? Well, I always, I always put it this way, <clears throat> prior to year 2000, nobody really cared about the Philippines. We could have been washed, washed out by the sea, uh, swallowed by the earth with earthquakes and all these other things. And we really wouldn't, uh, we really wouldn't matter. But today, today the Philippines is home to 17,000 JP Morgan employees. <clears throat> that makes the Philippines the third biggest headcount of JP Morgan globally. It has about 8,000 employees from Shell and sorry from Chevron and that makes us the largest headcount for Asia for Chevron. And so I can go on and on with different uh, from different countries, different industries, and the Philippines is now either the second or the third largest headcount globally of many companies. So from what was a country where nobody knew where it was, uh, nobody knew we were the only Christian country in, the, in Asia Pacific outside of Australia, New Zealand, and um, nobody knew that we spoke English uh, to a reasonable level. Mm. And, and today we are a very important part of global corporations. Uh, prior to year 2000, we'd be lucky to be on the global org chart. You know, when you have countries say, okay, this is our global footprint and this is how many countries we have in presence, 
and Philippines would be part of the small entry in this bracket called Asia-Pacific. But what many people are doing today is that we, we, in the org chart, we stand alone in the, in the global headcount. Mm. So there's Asia-Pacific, and then there's Philippines. There's an incredibly unique value proposition with the Philippines, I think, isn't there? You know, as you say, with the with the cultural alignment, the the sort of religion, uh, religious foundation, the the level of English uh, throughout the the environment, and then also, you know, you can't understate it, but the fact that um, it's been now building international executive talent for the last twenty or thirty years. You know, Vietnam is trying to get into offshore staffing and outsourcing, but it, it can't catch up on that 20, 30 years uh, head start, really, can it? You know, it's going to take a long time. I, I actually relate it to uh, China manufacturing, you know, and it, China was laughed at 20 or 30 years ago when you would get manufacturing done there. It's considered sort of a backwater. You would get only very basic stuff done there to a very low uh, quality and now, you know, the China is producing the highest um, technical achievements. It's it's building all of the iPhones. It's building any technology at the highest level. And not only now is it doing it as a vendor and, you know, fulfilling other people's uh, requirements, but it's actually now doing it and leading its own, its own path. Uh, and, you know, it, it's at the peak of the sort of, uh, technological boom, and I see see similarities with the Philippines. You know, initially they came here thinking you could maybe get a bit of customer service done, and fast forward thirty years, you have incredible executive talent that have been working in blue chip uh, enterprise global enterprises for the last 25, 30 years, and now the Philippines can sort of stand on its own feet and and take that to the world. Yeah, yeah certainly, it's been an incredible ride. Really incredible. And I think it's just going to get better. Yeah, incredible. You know, and I think the stability as well, because you see this with like Argentina and Venezuela and a lot of these emerging economies in India and, and the BRIC economies, they all showed promise, but then something kind of um, upsets them and then they kind of go back to, to zero again. And as you said, there's incredible, or there's sort of, there's been, a fantastic stretch of stability in the Philippines, and it looks like it's not going to end anytime soon. And uh, just things are going from from better to to better, really. And so, of course, there was there was one upset, which is is COVID, and you know it, it's been an incredible shock. Uh, and coming back to the whole commercial property sector, it, it seems incredible that it has managed to be resilient when. COVID has probably, you know, it's had the, the deepest um, impact on property. The, the offices have just pretty much stood empty for the last 18 months. So why do you, you know, how do you sort of see or justify the fact that the, the industry has been so resilient? I think it's because um, the private sector has so little debt. And number two, <clears throat> the BPO, the BPO industry, which is a, which is one of the big sta- stabilizing factors for society here, they continue to pay rent even though most of their employees are working from home. And something to say about work from home, 
it's been surprisingly uh, efficient and many companies have been pleasantly surprised at the outcome of work from home. Having said that, everyone also knows that uh, productivity levels have really come down working from home. And you're only able to do that because people's workload have come down. So, for example, my, my, my colleagues in the office, they're working from home, but they're only able to balance most of, most of that because their workload's been cut by half also. And so with all this free time, because you don't have much work, then you can juggle between being a mom or being a dad, being a, uh, being a kid, being a, and, and you know, doing everything that you need to do at home with, with carving out time for work. But as soon as, as soon as, uh, as the workload goes back to 100%, I think many people will struggle to sustain <clears throat> um, balancing work from home with, with life at home. And so they will go back to the office. They, and many, many CEOs validate that. The other thing is when organizations make the move to say, okay, my productivity levels are down. We need to carve market share and work faster and move faster. And I've lost collaboration and engagement with my employees and colleagues. I'm going to force everyone to go home, uh, to go to go to the office, to go back to the office and stop working from home. The moment one company does that, one significant name in an industry does that, the other players in the industry would say, wow, my competitor has decided to go back to the office full time. Mm. I've got my guys chilling in the, in the house. I don't see them. I don't have engagement. I, I, think, I think we have to go back and do the same thing because they're going to see competitors who have gone back to office, improve their productivity levels, and they're going to say, I think we can't let that happen because we're going to lose market share. And so that's going to snowball to people going back to the office. The other thing is that uh, humans are very set in their ways, I guess. And uh, all we have to do is ask the spouses of many CEOs, uh, the children or parents of CEOs, and they will all say the same thing, which is like, hey, you know, you're spending way too much time at home and I need you out of the house now if you want to save this marriage or if you want to keep talking to your kid or if you want to continue to be a son or daughter to your parents who you live with. You know, you, you have to get time out of FaceTime. And so, yes, for some people, COVID lockdowns have been an opportunity to nurture relationships and, and 
you know, uh, go deeper in relationships in a positive way. But I suspect, based on all the people that I talked to in the last 15 years, that um, let's not forget that in a, in a way that there are COVID hookups, there are also a number of COVID breakups because people couldn't stand each other living together for mm -hmm. so long, for so tight. And, uh, and so they needed space that they couldn't have. Uh, Where do you see the, the sort of the long distant future of offices though? 20 years ago, and I think it's, it's almost, it's a saving grace that COVID happened now. Like imagine if it happened 30 years ago when there was no internet and everyone could not work unless you were in the office. Um, it, you know, it, it would have just put completely halted the economy. So now at least uh, you can kind of cobble together work. And although people aren't necessarily keen to work remotely or everyone, they're able to do it and they're able to get those tools. 30 years ago, it wasn't possible. But 30 years from now in the future, you know, it, I assume we're going to have the younger generation. They're, they're completely digitally native. Um, and it could be, do you think the office environment, the, the sort of the CBDs that we commute into every day will be more um, uh, decentralized and and that could eventually become a thing of the past? Or do you think there's always place for commercial centers? I think, I think we will go back. Urbanization is something you, you, uh, that was a global phenomenon that, that has been happening since the dawn of time. And so uh, we will go back to, to the office and to the urban landscape slowly because of COVID, but we will get there again, just like what we did in 1919 after the Spanish flu wiped out anywhere from 50 to 100 million people. Um, we all went back to normal. We all went back to to the office when the the black day hit us a few centuries ago. We overcame that after all that mayhem and havoc, and we we continued to go back and urbanize. And so, I think technology will allow us temporarily to to work anywhere we want, but nothing will replace the human interaction. And um, another lesson that people are realizing is that the lapses, because right now, 15 months, 18 months of COVID, people are finally auditing what happened last year. And they realize that there are so many breaches to security, data privacy, uh, contract negotiations and a lot of corporate um, theft has gone on and eventually people are going to price that. These are conversations I've had with many CEOs and C-level people who are shocked at what they found and what people were capable of doing when, when nobody was watching and they're going to have a they're going to price that into the equation going forward. And so, and that's why I think, yeah, people, people will gradually go from 30% to office to 100% to office over time. 
and I think that's over an 18-24 month period. Uh, but during that time that they're transitioning, they're going to enforce even tighter controls as to access to information, how contracts are negotiated, etc. And these are things that will compel people back to work. Incredible. And, you know, without COVID, was the uh, commercial space production happening at the same speed? You know, could you see the next five or 10 years at the same pace of growth or was it plateauing off? And with COVID, has there been any adjustments to that or are people looking in in more of a long-term view? So I'll put it this way. In year 2019, we saw the highest number of new leases in the office sector in one year in all of our history, 1.7 million square meters of new leases. That is the third highest number in the world after Shanghai and Beijing. Right. That was the creation of new space or just like... New space, new jobs, new companies opening up here thanks to the BPO sector and the Pogo sector, the the Philippine online gaming industry. And in 2020, with the lockdowns, those new leases went from 1.7 million to 380,000 square meters. In the first six months of this year, we have done 250, 280,000 square meters. So we've done about 80% of what we did last, last year. And that's incredible. And that's just the first six months of this year. We've done 75, 80% of what we've done last year. Mm-hmm. And so I think the numbers from last year to this year will double. And so, yes, you can look at it as, well, you know, we dropped from 1.7 million square meters to 380,000 last year. Or you can look at that as saying 380,000 last year was one of the biggest new leasing numbers in the world. Many other countries had a deficit in office space take up. We were still positive, although at a much lower pace, slower pace. And and uh, we're we're seeing a very strong comeback. You know, from last year to this year, it will most likely double, if not more. And I think from in twenty twenty two, it will be even even bigger. So. It, it will it will take us back maybe we'll we'll need two years, three years to get back to to two thousand nineteen numbers. If the Pogo sector comes back this year and next year, then then that progression will happen at a much faster pace. So let's let's talk about that if if you're you're happy to the Pogo sector as you said it's the Philippine online gaming uh, and that's had a sort of um, a love hate relationship with the the Philippines or the administration or the 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 tax um, laws at least uh, can you give us a quick overview and and where are we currently with the Pogos? Sure. So when. When, the, when this administration sat, it made a conscious effort to open up relations with China. And who is China? China is the largest home of entrepreneurs in the world. It is the largest tourism market in the world with 150 million tourists today. 
<clears throat> and that's only 10% of the population with passports. Mm. Uh, it is the lar- second largest investor in the world after the United States. And it is the largest market for shopping in the world. And it has influenced so many countries, most countries in fact, almost every country in the world. It has invested in, it has meaningfully transformed those economies, influenced those economies. And yet for 50 years, for the last 50 years, China and Philippines have done very little with each other. And so this is the first time in, I would say, 100 years, 200 years, that China has noticed the Philippines. And what, what the client of mine said, for the first time, the Philippines is on the chessboard. It's not a meaningful party to that chessboard, but it is on the chessboard of geopolitics. And, um, and the gateway of that was Chinese tourism. Prior to this administration, we had 80 to 100,000 Chinese tourists come to the Philippines a year. And that's only in the most recent past. But since 2016, we saw that 100,000 number go to 1.2 million. So the Chinese tourism market is the largest uh, foreign market for Philippines today or prior to COVID. And uh, that's still nothing compared to the 12, 15 million people that went to Thailand in 2018, 19. 19. So, <clears throat> and that's just one of many other industries that potentially could come from China. So, so the online gaming industry was one gateway for Chinese tourism and investments to, to flow into. So you had all these online gaming operations from China that set up shop here. And while, while we focus so much on China, the online gaming industry is not just about China. Japanese companies are here, Singaporean companies, Malaysian companies, Australian companies, American companies from Las Vegas are here. Uh, Eastern Europeans, European companies are here. And they're, you know, and because they do English platforms, they don't really hire many foreigners. But the Chinese companies that are here are doing both English platforms and Chinese platforms, and therefore they needed to import a lot of foreign labor to operate in the Philippines. Why does the online gaming industry like the Philippines so much? Because, because we've allowed them free access to, to the Philippines. Uh, they can do the same thing in Cambodia, in Myanmar, in Thailand, in Malaysia, <clears throat> in Vietnam, but they are heavily, heavily, heavily regulated. They are heavily isolated. And here in the Philippines, we've allowed them to locate in the major business districts, and that, that allows for more humane work environments for, for that labor market to come here and coexist with the general Philippine public. Whereas in other, in other countries, they are isolated in literally the middle of nowhere. And they are gated, they can't, they're, they're in very controlled environments, they can't go out liberally. And so they feel hostage in many of those countries. Whereas here, they more or less have an equal footing with the locals. 
and that's the biggest attraction of, of that industry here. The other, the other big thing we're waiting for is that this law that uh, was passed by Congress at record time, that was passed by Senate recently, is going to lapse into law. Um, and, and that plus the opening of airways when people are allowed to travel again, the foreign workers will be able to, to come back to the Philippines. And I think that will accelerate the cocoa sector significantly because, because during COVID, when the entire world was in lockdown, the, the demand for online gaming activity just accelerated. Imagine if you if you if you were a, an avid gambler, and you in, gambled, let's just say only three hours a day, and all of a sudden you got locked up at home. What do you do? You basically just enabled yourself to gamble for another three, four, five hours. So you're gambling seven hours, eight hours a day, and doing that online, and and. Uh, you know, so the infrastructure supporting all that, all those transactions, just just went through the roof. And so, the Philippines, just like in the BPO sector, is playing a major part of that global online gaming market. So very exciting. And unlike the BPO sector, which employs locals, the the online gaming industry employs many foreigners, not just Chinese, not just Japanese, but many foreigners. And they immediately translate to um, an equivalent amount of demand for residential property. And because they live here, they start traveling throughout the country. So it also is a very big uh, tourism component to it. Yeah, it's huge, isn't it? You know, it's, it's again, it's another uh, huge sort of economic contribution to the Philippines, and you know, it, it's. Uh, I, I think there's a bit of love hate there because there, there there was such competition and there was a bit of competitive tension for all of the office space out there, uh, and they were just such huge consumers of the office space. Do you see then, you know, effectively once we get uh, COVID restrictions lifted and and this uh, tax law goes into action, then effectively the online gaming uh, sector will return to at least where it was? The people who are in that industry meaningfully have told me that the Pogo industry will come with a vengeance. So that's what they say. Let's, let's see if it happens. But I, based on the amount of office leasing increase they've done recently, I think that's, uh, that's most likely to happen. Incredible, yeah. Well, David, it's been a, an, an amazing conversation with you and, and, you know, it's been an incredible journey for the Philippines over the last sort of 25, 30 years and you've been right there at the at the forefront of it. So uh, it's great to have you on the show and to, to discuss all of this. David, of course, if anyone has any property requirements, and then I definitely recommend that they have a chat to the Chu Property Consultants uh, and you do so much in terms of, you know, research and publications and market research so you know it's it's all there and it's incredible resource that that your company provides uh so of course they should reach out to you if anyone wants to learn more or, or get in touch with Lee Chu how can they do that David 
Yes, thank you, Derek. Uh, they can just go to our website, that's vtube.com. And I'll put that in the, the show notes as well, nice and simple. Thanks so much for your, your time, David. Thank you very much, Derek. I really appreciate you having me here in your show. That was David Lee Chu of Lee Chu Property Consultants. As always, if you want any of the show notes, go to outsourceaccelerator.com slash podcast. And if you want to send us an email, ask us anything, then just email us at ask at outsourceaccelerator.com. See you next time.